combined into one quiz, yeah. A quiz, a combined quiz on Purgatorio and Paradiso. Okay? So that way all your reading and all your reading in Purgatorio will be for naught unless you also um, read Paradiso. Which is good. Because you want to do both. So um, I just said we we won't actually do the quiz today. We're going to do it a week from today. Yes. What hides the cow? Pacify. Pacify. And she is. Mother of the Minotaur. Yes. Oh. What is she? The mo oh so okay the myth of Pacify. She's the mother of the Minotaur. Um, who is half bull, half human, um, which requires... Yes. No, she disguised herself as a cow. Okay, yeah. Um, she disguised herself as a cow in order to get the bull interested in her. And she represents the natural law? No. <laughs> <laughs> she re she represents she represents ecology gone um, overboard. Okay, so they're both unnatural. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Want to make sure. Yes, but what is nature, really, if you think about it? <laughs> okay, we're all punchy. What are we thinking? Are, so, but you all did finish Purgatorio, right? Um, yes. <laughs> Good. Sorry. Before 2 a.m. Okay, good. Uh, so what do you think of it? Compared to Inferno. Not as good. Not as good, really? <laughs> More political. Yeah. More political. Yeah. I mean, I think it's because Dante grows an opinion at this point, I feel like. And, like, more people, like, I don't know. I, I guess he had a lot more to work with by, set, by saying certain people are in hell. Yeah. But I think he had a lot more to say politically that certain people are in purgatory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Yeah, I feel like in, like, hell he could show why and so on, you know, how they get punished and everything. Where in purgatory he's, like, more limited within, like, the imagery, so you have to choose words and start, you know, ranting against people politically. Um, maybe what you could say is that... I myself didn't find it more political, so don't find it more political. So I'm interested and intrigued by what you're saying. But maybe what you're registering is um, something that I hadn't really thought of, but that if there's a, that a lot of politics takes the form of um, prediction of punishment. That is to say that if you're on the outs, what you tend to say to those who are on, who, are, who have power is you're going to get yours. Um, right now you have power, but um, wait till you see what happens at the next election um, in 2012, in 1312, whatever. Um, what you're going to see is that your corruption will not go unpunished. Um, and that, so there are two ways that you can um, predict the punishment of those who are your political enemies. And one is to say... You may have power on Earth. Um, you may have power on Earth, um, but when you die, you will see um, how wrong you are. 
Um, the Shelley, whom we're actually going to look at in a second, the, the great English Romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, um, got into, he was a notorious atheist. He was kicked out of Oxford for writing a pamphlet when he was um, in his first year there, I think, um, with a wonderful title called The Necessity of Atheism. Um, and they didn't cotton to this at Oxford. Their, their idea of academic freedom was not, um, our idea at Brandeis isn't sufficiently broad, but Oxford in um, the early 19th century was narrower still. So he was kicked out of Oxford, but he was um, a diehard atheism, atheist. Um, he did a, um, a tour of Europe, and he signed a guest book on the top of Mont Blanc, or near the top of Mont Blanc. Um, and the way you signed guest books in the 18-teens was you would write your name, where you were coming from, and where you were going. So he wrote Percy Bysshe Shelley, Origin, um, uh, England destination, and he wrote L'Enfer, that is hell. Mm -hmm. um, and it was his good or misfortune that the um, pious priggish poet laureate of England, Robert Southey, happened to be the next person <laughs> to go um, to see this view of Mont Blanc and to sign this guest book, and he saw what Shelley had written, and he was completely scandalized by this, and he reported it to all his pious priggish friends in England. And then when Shelley died in 1822, um, the headline in uh, one of the London newspapers was, Shelley the atheist is dead. Now he knows whether there is a hell or not. Um, and so part of, part of your fantasy of vindication is, okay, so these evil people may have political power now and it's impossible to see how they'll ever um, be convinced that they're wrong on our planet, but when they die and go to hell, they will see that um, denying health care to little children with horrible diseases in order to be able to buy another yacht was not actually a good thing to do in God's eyes. Ha, ha, ha. So we look forward to some kind of, oh my goodness, I did the wrong thing uh, moment that they're going to feel in the afterlife. Um, and often we warn people that they're going to go to hell. You know, you're pro-choice, you're going to go to hell, and then you'll see how wrong that was. For example, I'm trying to, trying to be even-handed here. Um, or, um, you know, you're denying health care and you'll see how wrong that was. But often it's just, it's, we, it's a fantasy of vindication. We're imagining that they'll wake up in hell and realize that they screwed up. Um, that doesn't have that much political efficacy. What does have political efficacy, and I think that's what you guys are saying, what does have political efficacy, possibly, is the idea that you could actually reform. You could change. Um, you could be like George Wallace, and after being a complete and horrible racist um, all the way through the 60s and saying segregation now, segregation forever, um, you might actually decide that your political base is is black Democrats in the South, and you could change your spots. And that might be what purgatory is, the possibility of change within our life, because that's what gets you to purgatory. What gets a sinner to purgatory is that they have changed their attitude in this life rather than discovering in the other world that they screwed up. If you discover that you screw up in this world, then you go to purgatory. You've screwed up. You have to be punished. You have to do the time, but the time is not eternal this time. Yeah? That's why 
Yeah, um, that is according to Christian doctrine, is if you're a Christian, but you can be baptized on your deathbed. That is, you can convert at the moment of your death. Um, and if you do that, um, you will still go to purgatory. Um, as long as you die repenting, um, according to the doctrine of purgatory, you will go to purgatory. Some people go straight to heaven, but very few. Um, saints do. But generally, what most of us hope for, if we're if we're if we believe in um, in the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, most of us hope for purgatory, and we hope not too long. Um, and um, but the idea is that you can you can intervene in your life, and others can intervene for you while you're alive, in order to in order to tip you over to purgatory rather than hell. And that would um, mean changing your ways, um, changing your ways in this life. Um, in hell, we have seen people um, who end up in hell because at the very last moment they did the wrong thing. In purgatory, we see people who end up in purgatory because at the very last moment they do the right thing. Um, there's a famous um, line of Augustine's, which um, Augustine is someone we, we sometimes do in this class, but... Um, it comes at the expense of the Iliad usually. Um, but there's a famous line in Augustine um, that Augustine is talking about. Do people know about the two thieves who are crucified with Christ? Is this uh, most of you don't know? Can you can you say? Uh, I remember there was one um, thief that was like, "You're not the real Messiah." Like, yeah. Completely denying him. The other one confessed his sin to Jesus and. Jesus says, you are saved. So. Yeah, basically. So what happens is Jesus, part of the humiliation according to two of the Gospels, not all four, but according to two of the Gospels, part of the humiliation that Jesus is made to undergo when he's crucified, as though that's not bad enough, is that he's crucified with two thieves who are being crucified at the same time. That is, he's being treated as a common thief, um, and he's getting the death penalty not um, as a major political opponent, um, but as a common thief. And um, so the two thieves are next to him on the cross. There's lots of iconography of this and lots of paintings of this. Um, he's right in the middle, and there are thieves on either side, both being crucified. And one of them says to him, look at you, Mr. King of the Jews. Um, you're just a thief like us, um, and you thought you were so cool, um, but you're not. And the other thief said, why are you abusing him? He's suffering the way we are. This is terrible. Why add to it? And then Jesus turns to the second thief and says, tonight you will dine with me in paradise. And so there are two thieves who are being crucified. One um, just kind of randomly heaps obloquy on Jesus, and the other one almost as randomly um, simply takes the other side of the argument and defends Jesus, and that one goes to heaven with him. And so what Augustine said about this was that this was a very important lesson, which is, do not despair, Augustine says, one of the thieves was saved. So at the very end of his life, in the last moments when he's dying on a cross, one of the thieves is saved. And then Augustine goes on, do not presume one of the thieves was damned. So um, don't think that you can time your salvation so that at the very last moment you'll say, oh man, I had this really great life and I had 
nothing but sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but now with three seconds left to live, I repent, God, take me into your arms, and that'll be fine. Um, that would be presumptuous. Um, but if you did spend a life doing sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and now it's your time to die, don't despair because one of the thieves was saved. Um, this comes up in Waiting for Godot, if anyone has read or seen it. Um, Vladimir and Astragon have a conversation about the two thieves, and um, uh, Astragon thinks it's completely unfair that one of them is damned and one of them is saved. He just says, it's ridiculous that that's how it goes. But, but the idea is you want people, it's like what I try to do with your tests, you want people to study, but you also want people to think that there's always a point in studying, even if they screwed up before. Um, there's still a point in um, doing as well as you possibly can. Um, so that's a political, um, or the, the largest version of this in ordinary human interaction is political, which is that if people are doing the wrong thing, you want them to feel that they're getting themselves into serious, serious trouble by doing the wrong thing, um, and that they should not take one more step towards increasing the budget deficit. But you also want them to think that no matter how many more steps they've taken than the number of steps you've told them they can't take one more step after, um, it's, not, it's still not too late. So you want people to, so the whole point about managing politics is you want to pressure people to think now or never they can't do any more of this or there'll be disaster, but you also want people to think it's never too late to draw back from the brink. It's never too late to, um, to make things better. So hell is the threat that it's too late. Hell is politically what you're doing, you are bound to go to hell for doing it. And purgatory is, but you know you could still stop. It's about to be too late, but you could still stop. So purgatory is always the, it's about to be, but please stop. And hell is the, um, if you go on at all, it's, it's too late already. Um, so purgatory would be um, a carrot as well as a stick for people who you think are engaged in sin because of their politics, whereas hell is only a stick. There's no carrot there. Um, paradise isn't going to be either a carrot, it's not going to be a carrot at all because no one, I mean, what it actually is, is, I was going to say baked Alaska, but that's more like hell. Um, what it actually is, is, is something completely amazing, um, but politics doesn't get you to paradise um, on the whole. Um, saintliness gets you to paradise. Um, but at any rate, that might be a reason that you guys are registering that, that purgatory seems um, more um, political than Inferno does. Emily. Because it's harder to Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if you read the notes, a lot of the a lot of the individuals are, are not identified. That is, he meets people and people try to figure out who they were in real life 
Um, and sometimes we think they were real people, but there's an argument as to whether we can know who they are, and sometimes it's not clear whether they're real or not. Uh, Matilda, who we'll look at, is, um, is a leading example of that. Um, Sapia is another example of that. Okay, what I'm distributing here, there are two sheets coming around. Um, this is more, um, partly more of Dante in later poetry um, is, is why I'm putting it around. But first, okay, I want to talk about, um, there's a lot to talk about in Purgatory, and as you, you'll see, there's a lot to talk about in Paradise. Um, Paradise, just to let you know, is a hallucinatory book. It's phantasmagoric. It's um, hard in a way that Inferno and Purgatorio aren't. Um, but on the other hand, if you just kind of let yourself be taken by um, its kaleidoscopic intensity, um, just try to follow sort of what's going on kaleidoscopically, um, I hope you'll be blown away by it. Um, Purgatorio, just so you know, Purgatorio is, Harold Bloom thinks, is, is the greatest part of the Divine Comedy. Um, I think Paradiso is. Um, but it's worth knowing, um, at any rate, that the kinds um, of, the, it's worth knowing the kinds of judgment that people make who are not in any way committed to the theology or the belief system of Dante as to nevertheless what makes these things great. So um, in Inferno, we talked about this a little bit, but I particularly um, wanted to um, draw your attention to this moment. If you read the notes, you, you will have known about it. But in Inferno 28, you don't have to bring it out if you don't have it. This is Inferno 28, not Purgatorio. In Inferno 28, 28 um, we meet a man who's holding his severed head and swinging it as though it's a lantern. Do, does anyone remember who that is? Name? Okay, it's um, Bertrand de Born, um, and what Dante says about him is that he's holding his head as if it were a lantern. The head stared at us and said, oh, whoa. Of himself, he made himself a lamp. So he made, he made a lamp of himself. Of himself, he made himself a lamp and they were two in one and one in two, which is an odd little parody of the Trinity, but it's a, it's a duality. How this can be, he knows who so ordains it. When he was just at the foot of the bridge, he raised his arm high and with it, that head, so as to make his words sound more distinct. And what he says, um, you who view the dead with breath yet in your body, Look upon my grievous punishment. Is any other terrible as this? That is, that he's carrying his own head. Is there any punishment as terrible as this? So you may carry back the news of me. No, I am Bertrand de Born, the one who urged the young king on with bad advice. Father and son, I set to enmity. Um, and his story, if you read the footnotes, is that he did do this, that um, he encouraged the son to go against the father. He was playing them off against each other. Father and son, I said to enmity, Achitophel stirred no worse ill between Absalom and David with his wicked goading. Um, do people know what that's a reference to? Um, you know the Faulkner title? What's the Faulkner title? 
Absalom, Absalom. That's what David says um, over the fact that his son Absalom, egged on by Achitophel, rebels against him. Um, eventually, in the battle between, between their forces, Absalom is taken and killed um, against David's express orders. But the point is that it's a son who leads a rebellion against... Uh, the son of a king leads an actual civil war against his father. And that's very shocking in um, the Book of Kings, and it's very shocking now. Yeah? Did he really lead the war against Saul? Because basically what he wants to do is kill all of his siblings um, who have died with Amnon. Uh, I don't know, does he actually want to take over the throne, or does he just want to well, it depends on your interpretation of what he wants, but Achitophel certainly wants him to take over the throne. So, Achitophel stirred no worse ill than I, Bertram de Bourne, did between Absalom and David with his wicked goading. And then he explains, because I severed persons thus conjoined, um, Philip Pullman, anyone? Because I severed persons thus conjoined, that is, in this case, father and son, um, conjoined by blood. Because I severed persons thus conjoined, severed, alas, I carry my own brain from its starting point, that is away from, separate from, severed from its starting point here in my body. So because I severed persons thus conjoined, severed, alas, I carry my own brain from its starting point here in my body, and then the last line is, in me you may observe fit punishment. And in the Italian, it's the, the, the phrase fit punishment is um, an important one, lo contrapasso. That is the, the counter punishment for what I've done. Um, so this is, that idea of the contrapasso is really crucial to Inferno, that all punishment is fit, is a counterpart to the crime. And it's a counterpart to the crime in a way I just repeat myself, but it's a counterpart to the crime in the sense that it's a repetition of the crime. You wanted severing, you thought severing was a good thing, fine, here's all the severing you want. Um, his head is severed from his body. You thought that was a good thing to do, that's what you're going to to suffer. Um, in Purgatorio, um, the punishments are different. Um, so that, for example, what is, do people remember what the punishment for pride is? Yeah, to have to carry heavy weights, weights like those you sometimes feel in dreams. That is, weights which you don't, which somehow you're simultaneously carrying and can't carry. Um, it's a, quite a wonderful moment where Dante appeals to our own experience of dreaming um, and says they're like those weights of, in dreams, weights you can both carry and can't. Why is that the right punishment for pride? Yeah. Well, I thought it was like they were hunched over, looking to the ground, humiliating. And yeah. It's a humbling experience. Exactly. So that the proud, so the punishment in purgatory is not a punishment in which you get the thing you wanted, which is what punishment in hell looks like. You wanted severing, you get severing. You wanted to spend all your time messing around with Paolo, you will spend eternity messing around with Paolo. You wanted to um, eat the person 
who was causing you, you wanted to eat and um, take revenge on the person who made you so hungry, you'll get to eat his brain for all eternity. In hell, all the punishment is what you wanted and more so. In purgatory, the punishment is the opposite of what you wanted. So if you were proud, what that meant was you stood up erect and, um, and triumphant, um, looming over everyone else. So what's the punishment? The punishment is that you are weighed down so that you are hunched over and humble. So punishment in purgatory is punishment which undoes or pushes against and in the opposite way from the crime. Punishment, the punishment in purgatory is punishment which pushes back against the crime. Punishment in hell is punishment that pushes the crime to, its ex to an extreme that the criminal never expected. So punishment in hell, if you're going in one direction, in hell you're pushed further in that direction. In purgatory, if you're going in one direction, you're pushed back from back towards the middle, back towards virtue. Any, whatever thing you do wrong, in purgatory you're pushed the other way. In hell, whatever thing you do wrong, you're pushed even further towards that wrong. Um, so the punishment, do you remember the punishment for envy in purgatory? Your eyes are sewn shut. So envy comes from looking with too much interest and curiosity and either hatred or happiness at what happens to other people. Hatred if they get good things, happiness if they get bad things. Um, that's what happens to Sapia. She sees um, evil people defeated in a battle. And she rejoices because she's happier to see the pain of another than she is simply to um, wish for virtue. And when she sees that, she looks at the sun and says, now, I, now um, you can't do anything to me, God. So for the reveling in the sight of evil, even though, even though the bad thing that she sees is right, it's, good, it's a just thing that she's celebrating it, she's celebrating it for unjust reasons. She's celebrating it out of joy in seeing people she hates being hurt. And so that joy in an envious sight, the point is that, that w another psychological point that Dante is making is that schadenfreude, do people know what that is? That schadenfreude is itself a version of envy. Um, to see the mighty fall um, is a way of registering your envy of the mighty. Um, so it's all about looking elsewhere. How are things going with you? Checking out what's in the Joneses' driveway. Um, it's all looking elsewhere, and since it's the Joneses, you're jonesing for them to do badly, for, them, for their home to be foreclosed upon. Um, and um, because of that, the punishment is to have your eyes stitched shut so you can't see anything to be envious of. Your desire to see and hate your desire to indulge in the pleasure of hating, to see in order to hate, that desire is taken away. And that's when she says, but I think you can see to Dante. Um, I can't see you. It's, do you remember this? It's quite an amazing moment. 
that is that Dante is talking to her and she says, but who are you? It seems like you can see. Um, do you remember that? Has anyone read Saramago's Blindness? You should. Um, do you know about it? It's a movie also. With I haven't seen it. Have you seen the movie? Um, so there's one character in it who can see, um, and no one knows that she can see. Um, but when they start suspecting she can see, that's one of the ways that... Um, um, is it Kristen Scott Thomas is the one who can see, right? I think so. The actress? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, all right. I, yeah. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. At any rate, so um, one of the ways that the blind are in, in Saramago's blindness, one of the ways that the blind are um, sorted into the good and the evil is that those who can see and want to hurt her for the... I mean, those who are blind but want to hurt her for the fact that she can see, they're the evil ones. <coughs> they guess that she can see and they want to hurt her for it. But Sapia, when she guesses that Dante can see, her response is not envious. She doesn't say, oh, I hate you, you can see. The whole point is she is learning. And what she, she wants her story told, but she's not envious of his sight. And that's an important thing. That she isn't, Emily. Yeah, I just think that punishment means hell. It just increases your suffering. You don't learn a lot. You don't. You don't learn a lot of things. Yeah. You come to like you have regret, but it's like painful regret. Yeah. Um, whereas here the punishment is designed for you to learn. Yeah. For you to become more worthy. Yeah. And so part of what that means is that in purgatory, um, the no one is really, once you're in purgatory proper, no one is really complaining about their punishment. That is, they don't like it, but they're not saying, this is so mean of God to do this to me. Um, this is so mean of the universe. What you don't get in, no one in purgatory blasphemes. Um, and in a way that's obvious, but in another way it's what Emily is saying. That is that their own attitude towards punishment in purgatory is, is that they understand that it's purifying. It may be terrible, and they may be suffering, and they may not like the fact that they're suffering, but they also feel um, that all every bit of suffering they undergo is taking them to a place where the suffering gets less and less as you climb higher and higher up the mountain. That's why pride, which bends you down and makes it impossible to, to feel like you can get anywhere, um, once, you, once you are cured or purged of pride, it's easier to go up. You no longer have that huge burden of punishment. There are other punishments you have to undergo, but the burden, which slows you down most of all, the burden of counteracting the, your pride on earth, that's lifted. So the higher you go in purgatory, the easier it is to go up. Yeah, Lana. Especially the one who like, tells them, well, when you go back, I have so much expression, but, you know, rest first. I don't want, was she the one who says it? No, uh, no, that's Balakwa. Okay, okay, just wondering, it was just so funny that yeah. from all the sinners, from all the well, sinners, like somebody's like Jewish mom. Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, I have some bread to wash down the strawberry ice cream. Um, yeah, it's. Um, but that's another fact about pur about purgatory is that um, there's desire to go up the mountain. 
That's really important. And people are going up a mountain. The point about anti-purgatory, before you get into purgatory proper, is it's actually not as painful as purgatory itself is going to be, um, as the beginning of purgatory is. And that's why Balakwa is just deciding he's going to rest a really long time um, before he goes up. Um, but the idea then is that people go up the mountain by choice. That is, they suffer by choice. Um, it's bad, but they know why they're doing it, and they choose to do it. Yeah? Didn't Balakwa say that he wasn't going to go up because he had 30 more years anyway, so he couldn't go up if he wanted to? Yeah, but he's happy about it. Um, his, his slothfulness is something that Dante and Virgil disapprove of. Um, it's it's uh, um, the idea of the real push is something that he hates. Um, he's, he's a fascinating figure for that reason. Yeah? Um, this is kind of off subject, but it's, I guess, with moving up in the ascension to paradise. Is it suspiciously flattering that the one person they see that's moving up to paradise is Virgil's biggest fan? <laughs> Uh, suspiciously flattering to... Um, sorry? Or their journey in general. Well, so what, what, what are you suspicious of? That wouldn't have, like, I don't think that Dante would say that, like, Virgil's, like, number one fan was in Okay, so who do you mean? You, you mean Statius, yeah. Um... Well, I think that, I mean, I, I want to get to um, the <coughs> moment when they meet. Yeah, it might be suspiciously flattering, but I think it might be better to say that um, Virgil is just such a remarkable figure in the Divine Comedy. Um, that is to say, in Inferno and Purgatorio, because, of course, he's not in Paradise. So. Um, and he's remarkable partly because what he stands for for, for Dante um, this might this might be a way to to talk also about the people in the first circle. Um, the things that are motivating Dante, the two major things and his two major guides, are Virgil and then Beatrice. And we could say that Virgil and Beatrice means um, that uh, the two things that that are most driving him are poetry and love. Um, he's in love with Beatrice, and um, he's in love with poetry. And he says, you know, that in the conversation that um, Beatrice, and, I mean, that, uh, that Statius and Virgil had, um, he learned those things that enabled him to write a new kind of poetry. And that was um, not so much in the Divine Comedy, but in, um, in the rest of his work and his writing, in a sense, that was Dante understood that as his biggest achievement and his biggest ambition was to write a new kind of poetry. Um, he wrote essays and um, and critical works and letters and demonstrations of this new kind of poetry, the sweet new style. I quoted this for you. I quoted this to you before. Um, and so Virgil stands for him for the power of poetry and its insight, let's say, into the human soul. That is, Virgil is for Dante, the greatest poet who ever lived. Um, how wonderful that he was Italian, um, as Dante 
is um, the greatest poet who ever lived, and great because of his combination of um, describing a story of an arduous journey which requires co incessant courage to meet external threats with extremely deep psychological penetration. And that, for Dante, is what poetry gives you. And it's why Virgil, despite the fact that he is um, a secular poet or a pagan poet, a poet who makes Augustus into a god, um, who believes or seems to believe in the Roman gods, why he is nevertheless a figure whom a Christian um, can take as a guide through um, what's most important about, the, about human experience and about um, its just reception or its just judgment in an afterlife. Um, so if Statius, who's Dante thought of as the second greatest Latin epic poet, um, Statius lived about, um, I guess Statius's Thebiad was a little bit more than a century after the Aeneid. Um, so you're quite right to say, so here's a later poet who revered Virgil, and something amazing happens, which is yet another much later poet who revered Virgil, namely Dante, brings Virgil to the place where Statius meets him. And so Dante is the poet who makes possible the introduction of a poet who was long dead when the poet who was second to him and who revered him wrote and now, look, Dante says, I'm bringing you guys together. Um, you know, you're friends, friends of friends, like. Um, and then, of course, the fact that Dante's the one who brings them together means that this is the culmination of what you could call the moment of poetic election, the moment when Dante, Dante joins with these other poets. But then the other thing is going to be love, and that's what Beatrice stands for, and why Beatrice takes over. Um, one way to think of it, well, I hope we'll get to this, but one way to think of it is to think that there's a sense in which um, Virgil, as Dante's only guide through, through hell and purgatory, or his main guide, his only guide through hell and his main guide through purgatory, um, that... Um, he has to be everything for Dante in that um, in that journey until finally he can bring Dante to a place where he can no longer guide him but where he can give him to Beatrice who can now take over um, from the earthly paradise all the way through the highest heaven. Um, someone else stand with up? Yes. I found it kind of curious that Virgil's pushing Dante to hurry up through all of purgatory. I would think Virgil would be kind of <coughs> glad to be there because he's been in limbo forever and he's going to be there forever. Yeah. It's like something different. Yeah, but but time is short. That is, it has to be done um, this weekend. It's Easter. Oh. Um, so it's partly Virgil's self-sacrifice. Is yeah, is is the time is short. But again, look, the the main thing is that another way of describing the switch between 
um, Inferno and Purgatorio, is um, that Inferno in the first circle, which is where Homer and Lucan and Ovid and Horace and Virgil are, the place of those five poets, and it's also where Plato and Aristotle are. Yeah. Well, he falls asleep, but it's only for an hour or so at a time. Oh, okay. So, so the night comes, and I had it like in my head, it's like a 24-hour like period. So then you. No, but if it's if you read the notes with extraordinary care, um, the kind of care that a year-long course on Dante would encourage you to do, um, the Dante is is extremely careful about um, the time sequence, and you can tell by, I mean, some of the conversation that Virgil and Dante have is Dante says, why is the sun to the north? Um, what's going on there? I've never seen the sun on the north. Um, the sun is always in the southern sky, and Virgil says, you're, on the, you're in the southern hemisphere now, so the sun is always closer. Um, it, it's north of where we are, just as it's south of, um, the sun is always south of Mount um, Zion, it's always north of the Mount of Purgatory. That's the ecliptic, and you can tell what time it is by the shadows and by what stars are in the sky and by um, what constellations you can see. Or Virgil will sometimes say, yeah, the sun is now in this constellation. Um, if it were June, it would be in Gemini, but right now it's in Aries. Um, but it's the there are a lot of astronomical indications as to what time it is, and he's really, really careful about that. Um, it's not the first thing you should be paying attention to when you read Dante, but you know, on your fourth or fifth reading, pay attention to it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's what he says. Yeah. yeah. No, there's there's no question about that. But again, it's the thing. So in a way, the trickiest thing, and if you get this, there's a way that you can you can get an answer to that, is the first circle where the five poets are, including Virgil, and where the philosophers are. And what they do in that circle, you'll see something like this picked up in Milton. But what they do in that circle is they talk about poetry and they talk about philosophy. And um, what everyone, again, the, the crucial thing to remember is that everyone is where they chose to be in hell. Now, most people make a wrong choice and they discover that their choice is wrong. Um, it's not so clear what Francesca would say about spending eternity with Paolo. She doesn't say, look, I'm being punished. We never should have. You know, she says, well, that book really tempted us into doing what um, might not have been so smart and got us murdered. But she also talks about Paolo um, as someone who is there with her and um, as someone she loves. And so with Paolo and Francesca, it's not clear 
that they're that they that they feel that they've made the wrong choice. Um, they they're a kind of transition into people who do start feeling they've made the wrong choice. Um, the poets and the philosophers, what they chose. Socrates is a really great example of this, not in Dante but in Plato. Socrates's choice of life, and this is something that that Dante is thinking of, is if you read through all the dialogues that are sometimes collected, I think there's a book called The Last Days of Socrates um, that, are, that comprise the Euthyphro, the Mino, the Apology, um, the Crito, and the Fido, um, which is where Socrates dies. Um, five big dialogues, five dollars is in Okay. Um, and what that story of those in those five dialogues, they, they do form a story, a kind of a kind of novel of the last days of Socrates. And what Socrates basically says is his friends say, Look, we can get you out of here, you can escape. And Socrates says, I could have gotten I could have chosen exile um, at my trial and I didn't. Why would I now want to escape from prison? And they say, Because um, then you wouldn't have to die. And Socrates says, I'm not afraid of death. Obviously, he said that in the Apology. And he says, but, you know, the good thing is, here we are in prison, but we can talk philosophy, so let's do it. And Socrates' idea of life, what he likes in life, is talking philosophy. And when he's offered anything else, he turns it down, because all he wants is philosophical argument. That's what Socrates wants is to have conversations about philosophy. That, for him, is what matters in life. And that's what he gets in Dante. That's what the philosophers and the poets get in the first circle. They gave their lives to a life of the mind, a life which was not a religious life, but was an intellectual life and a soul-examining life. They gave their life to the examination of the soul not to a desire for salvation. So they didn't desire salvation, and it's to their credit in a funny kind of way, in a non-Christian kind of way, but still to their credit, even for Dante, that they did not act for pleasure, but they acted for out of the intellectual motivation of thought. And they get that for eternity, and they get to spend eternity with each other. If you guys know the George Bernard Shaw play Man and Superman, um, there's the center of that play is called Don Juan in Hell. And Don Juan in Hell is about how Don Juan much prefers the company to be found in hell to anyone you can find in heaven. Because in hell, that's where all the really interesting people are. And what do they do? They discuss philosophy. So if you're highly intellectual, if you place as the highest good that you can imagine um, thinking things through, if you make thought rather than the result of thought, but thinking itself the great thing, then you're not Christian because Christian is about getting to God Christianity is about getting to God, not about thinking. But if you are a non-Christian philosopher, and if you make thinking the great thing in life, then spending eternity with Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Homer is what you want. And what Dante is saying is Virgil recognizes how much he misses 
because he was on the verge of being Christian, but he also gets to be someone who thinks as deeply as anyone has ever thought, and he can do that forever. So it's it's um, uh, bittersweet, but not a bitter fate that belongs to Virgil. Yeah. Say that Dante is not that explicitly presented with it, but he has a choice between spending eternity with great minds or his wife at that point. Well, she's not his wife, but well, yeah, um, yeah. And so, in a sense, that's right. So, in a sense, the fact that he he, I think you're asking a really, really deep thing. And what I would say is maybe in a really odd way, the closest thing to the kind of balancing act that Dante is trying to pull off, where he gets, you know, I, th- I think this may become clearer or may become less clear when we do Paradiso, but where he gets the experience of um, absolute bliss, um, which has nothing to do with thought. Thought and bliss are, are opposed to each other. Um, thought is always comes from um, dissatisfaction and bliss, absolute bliss, would be complete satisfaction. Um, So to somehow try to merge those two, the closest thing that we've seen before is the sirens in the Odyssey. That is, hearing the song and having that experience of absolute bliss, but not being allowed to die with that experience, but being chained and pulled away from it back to reality, back to real life, back to its memory. That's what Dante is doing, Um, except the siren song isn't the song of the sirens here, it's God. Um, But still, like Odysseus, he, he knows what that bliss is and yet has not yet merged with it. And at least, like all us mortals, for a time, he gets to write poetry and to think about this stuff and to think it through. Um even though that comes from dissatisfaction and longing, which is what poetry comes from. As Wallace Stevens says, from this the poem springs, that we live in a place that is not our own and much more not ourselves. That's Stevens's account of the origin of poetry, that we live in a place that is not our own and much more not ourselves. So paradise is where you will be in a place that is your own and is yourself. But there's no poetry there. There's a lot of psalm singing, singing, as you'll see. But it's interesting how all the poems start being recited in purgatory. It's a desire to get to paradise. Um, in a sense, purgatory is crucial for Dante because his life on earth now becomes a continuation of purgatory. Um, that is, writing this poem, moving through the other world, moving through the regions of his mind, moving through the regions of his memory, which he talks about. One thing to notice, I'll just say this, one thing to notice is how often Dante talks about memory. Because what you will find when you get to paradise, one of the surprising things about angels is they have no memory. Angels are intellects without memory. And um, there's a reason for that, and it makes sense when you get to it. But what this suggests is that memory itself is um, 
an experience which goes with Virgil and with Dante and with the poets rather than with the angels. And as I say, it's a balancing act that he's trying to, trying to pull off. Luckily, life makes him pull it off because he's a living being. He's in this world, not in the other world. Where he is now, I don't know. Um, whether up in heaven um, he's forgotten the divine comedy, um, he may well have. And there may seem to be a loss there. James Merrill, in his great, great poem, um, the book, um, well, it's a poem called, called um, The Changing Light of Sandover, but the first volume of that is a book called The Book of Ephraim, a long narrative poem, 500 pages long, um, published in the 70s and 80s in three parts. Um, has an idea, it's a, it's, it's a poem largely about the afterlife and also about some exchanges between the afterlife and this world. Um, and Dante comes back for a couple of hours. Um, he gets to return to this life for a couple of hours um, in dream. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting moment in the Book of Ephraim. Um, I know you've read it, Anna, but I don't know if anyone else. You've read it? No. Okay, but your hand is up. Well, you, you did the, like, calling on someone yeah. uh, thing. Um, <laughs> yes? So, is it sort of, would it be fair to say that Dante puts the poets in hell because he has nowhere else to put them? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Or God puts the poets in hell because he has nowhere else to put them. Yeah. Except Statius, who's a post-Christian poet. Okay. Yeah. Question number two. Uh, it, it seems that by around the time of Purgatorio, Dante sort of thinks of his mission to be um, showing people who come after him what, you know, heaven and hell and, and um, Purgatorio is like, and giving them an account of it. But that seems to sort of organically evolve, right? Like, where does it say what his mission is? Or are we supposed to figure it out ourselves? Well, no, he... he, he what he's doing is simply saying, I'm going to tell what happened to me. Um, but he does at some point give you warnings and say, um, and this is part of the politics of it, but he does give you some warnings and he says, you know, you should watch out, this could happen to you. Um, but his mission is to be a poet and to give this vision of the afterlife, which is unlike anything anyone has ever seen um, and or thought about or imagined. And... Um, his mission is partly to praise Beatrice because he's a love poet um, and he's completely in love with her even though she's been dead for um, well in 1300 she's been dead for I guess about 15 years and um, by the time he writes it she's been dead longer um, like why was he chosen by God like why him and all people to go on this journey why was he chosen by God to be a great poet um, the explanation is Beatrice um, intervened for him um, and did he deserve it no but it, that question is that's a great question but it's a question that everyone asks about themselves why me why here How, why was I born um, so you're right that that's a central question but it's not a question that he has a special answer for um, yeah no your hand wasn't up okay um, look there Okay, one th just to point out that um, that Purgatorio 17 is you don't have to go there, but at the end of Purgatorio 17, there's a little there's a little um, explanation about how love works, 
um, a philosophical account of love. Purgatorio 17, if you take the 99 cantos that constitute the afterlife proper, um, that is the first canto we said, which is the introduction to the whole, is followed by 33 cantos in Inferno, even though the first canto is in, in, is in the volume called Inferno. Inferno proper really begins with canto two. Um, that's when he starts his journey through the first of the three regions. And 99 cantos later, we get to the word stars at the very end of Paradiso. Um, and we've had 33 cantos of, per, of Inferno, 33 of Purgatorio, 33 of Paradiso. Of those 99, since it's an odd number, there's a single middle canto. If you have an even number of things, there isn't a single one that's in the middle because it splits 50-50. But if you have an odd, there are 30, um, or there, there are 44, um, stan 44 cantos, then the middle canto, then, no, what do I mean 44? Um, 48, no, 49, me and my arithmetic, 49, a middle, and then another 49. <coughs> Um, and that gives you 99. The middle canto is Purgatorio 17. So the very middle of Purgatorio 17. So Purgatorio 17 is the very middle of the Divine Comedy, and that's where you get a philosophical disquisition on love, <coughs> explaining how it is that love built hell and purgatory and heaven. So it's worth noticing that the very middle of the Divine Comedy is the philosophy of love. Yeah. Um, this is a little off topic, but I wanted to ask about this because I was kind of struck by the beauty of the surroundings in Purgatorio. Like, there's all this punishment going on, but there's still this, like, serenity yeah. and screenness in the sun and people singing. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know if I, I mean, it seems to, like, work, but I guess I just wasn't expecting that. No, but you're not supposed to expect it. You can't, nothing in Dante should be expected. So the amazing thing is you leave hell and the first thing he sees are, is light and stars, and that's amazing. And then from then on, the light increases. The day gets, it gets later in the day, light is increasing everywhere, and by the time you get to the top, you're in paradise. Yeah. Um, back to the love thing, can you explain how it was in Canto 17? Because I was trying to read it and it. Okay. Um, I you, all right, let's look at Canto 17. This is um, page 373. Um, so, Start at line 83. Sweet Father, tell me. So this is Virgil to Dante. Sweet Father, tell me. What is the offense made clean here in this circle that we've reached? If our feet must rest, do not arrest your words. Um, they were resting there, of course, right in the middle. Of course they're going to rest. If our feet must rest, do not arrest your words. And he, a love of good that falls short of its duty is here restored here in this place. Now, <clears throat> interestingly, where we are is the place, is the transition between wrath and sloth. Um, and so Virgil says, 
both of those are similar in that they both represent a love of good that falls short of duty. Um, sloth, because you just you know what you're supposed to do, but you don't do it. Wrath, because you are angry at what isn't good, <coughs> but you don't figure out a way to make it better. Um, you don't turn the other cheek. So a love of good that falls short of its duty is here restored, here in this place. Here the slackened oar is pulled with greater force that you may understand more clearly, pay close attention. So that's what Samantha wants us to do. Then you shall pluck some good fruit from our stay. Neither creator nor his creature, my dear son, was ever without love, whether natural or of the mind, he began, and this you know. So all living beings feel love. Um, Freud is going to say the same thing. That is, that eros, or um, the sexual instinct, is what all, at least, sexual reproducers have. Dante didn't know about, well, he sort of, not really, he didn't really know about asexual reproduction. So, um, neither creator nor his creature, my dear son, was ever without love, whether natural or of the mind. He began, and this you know. The natural is always without error. That is, natural love, um, the love of plants, the loves of animals, and so on. Um, they follow their own instincts. The natural is always without error, but the other may err in its chosen goal, that is, love of the mind, love that comes from the mind, or through excessive or deficient vigor. While it is directed to the primal good, to God, knowing moderation in its lesser goals, it cannot be the cause of wrongful pleasure. Um, again, think of the symposium. What Socrates says there is that love is always love of the good, um, and as long as you know that, your love will be correct. But if you screw up, if you make an error as to what it is you love, then there can be wrongful pleasure. So while it is directed to the primal good, knowing moderation and its lesser goals, it cannot be the cause of wrongful pleasure. But when it bends to evil, when love bends to evil or pursues the good with more or less concern than needed. So either you love the wrong thing or you are overly or underly concerned about what you love. Overly equals wrath. Underly, too little concern equals sloth. So when it bends to evil or pursues the good with more or less concern than needed, then the creature works against his maker. From this, you surely understand that love must be the seed in you of every virtue because it's loving the primal good. So love must be the seed in you of every virtue and also the seed of every deed that merits punishment. Love is the cause of all things, both the good that you do and the evil that you do. So does that make sense so far? Okay. Now... Since love cannot avert its face from the welfare of its subject, it is the nature of love that you want good things for what you love. Now, since love cannot avert its face from the welfare of its subject, all creatures are secure against self-hatred. So, because you yourself are full of love, you can't hate yourself in some primal sense. Um because being full of love 
your attitude towards yourself has to be one of love. You should possibly think of narcissists here. And in some primal sense, you can't hate yourself. All creatures are secure against self-hatred. It doesn't mean that some people don't experience self-hatred, but that's actually um, an experience of something else um, that manifests itself as self-hatred. And since no being can conceive itself as severed self-existing from its author, each creature is cut off from hating him. Now, here he's saying something important and unexpected. No one can fail to love himself or herself, and no one can fail to love God. That matters because in hell the punishment is you love God, but you have no access to him. So that's, that might be hard because you could say, what about blasphemers? What about Satan himself? But the answer, again, is to be found in the symposium that all things love the good, it's only they mistake what the good is. So all things love God, but they get wrong what, where that love for God should go. But it is simply the case that we all love ourselves and we all love God. It follows, if I'm right in these distinctions, that the evil that is loved must be a neighbor's. So if you ever love evil things, it's not God and it's not yourself, but it's you want to see a neighbor doing badly. Or you like the evil things a neighbor is doing. Either way. So the evil that is loved must be a neighbor's. So where do, where do we go wrong? We go wrong in how we treat each other. No one treats themselves badly and no one actually treats God badly. Where human sin is, is in the way we treat each other. Three ways this love, love of a neighbor's evil, he now says, there are three ways that this love takes form within your clay. There is the one hoping to excel by bringing down his neighbor, who for that cause alone longs that from his greatness his neighbor be brought low. So there are those who are jealous of their neighbors and want to see them do badly because they don't want to see anyone do better than they're doing. So that's one way love of evil can manifest itself. There is the one who fears the loss of power, favor, honor, fame. Should he be bettered by another this so agrees him that he wants to see him fall. Um, so, I'm sorry, I, miss, I misspoke on the first one. The first one is people who want to do well by hurting others. That is, to show how powerful they are by hurting others. The second kind of love are those who fear that they will look bad if their neighbors um, look better. Um, and so they want to see their neighbors fall. So those are two ways to hurt other people, two reasons to want to hurt others. One, because you'll look good. Look at me, I hurt that person. And um, the second, because you won't look bad when they look good. And then the third, and there is the one who thinks himself offended and hungers after vengeance, and he must then contrive another's harm. And then there, there are those who do it out of self-love 
um, where they think the neighbor has offended them, and then they seek vengeance, and then he must contrive another's harm. All these three forms of love cause weeping down below. So those three forms of love, again, which, which love to see a neighbor fall, all of those are crimes, and they cause weeping through punishment. Now I would have you consider yet another which pursues the good in faulty measure. So those three kinds of love are excessive love. Now let's look at a love which is um, indolent, which doesn't go far enough. Everyone can vaguely apprehend some good in which the mind may find its peace with desire, excuse me, in which the mind may find its peace. With desire, each one strives to reach it. If the love that draws you on is laggard, to know or have that peace, this terrace after just remorse torments you for it. So if you know what you want, but you don't go after it enough, that's faulty love, it's deficient, and here you will um, be purged for it. There is another good that fails to make men happy, for it is not the essence or true source, the root of happiness, or its proper fruit. The excessive love which gives itself to that is mourned above, by, above us in three circles. That is love of lust, essentially. Exactly how its parts are three I do not say so that you may consider for yourself. So now we're going to get to the, to the top three circles. Um, which are avarice, gluttony, and lust, where the object of love is the wrong thing. It's another person rather than God. So there's, um, there's loving to see other people do badly, and those are the really bad sins, um, wrath, um, um, envy, and pride which is to love to see yourself put above others. Those are, you could say, the self-serving, self-delighting, um, uh, narcissistic sins. Now we're at the sin of sloth, where it's not that you are loving to see other people feel pain, and it's not that you are um, failing to love what's good. It's that you're just not trying hard enough. And then there's the three lesser mistakes of love, which are not loving to see your neighbor hurt, but loving your neighbor in the wrong way. Whether your neighbor neighbor is money or food or that sexy person down the hall. Um, and those, So all of those are aspects of love. Loving evil, not loving enough. Loving good, but for the wrong thing. Um, loving pleasure, loving to have um, to have and to give pleasure, but not to God, but to another human being or um, to take pleasure in, in the company of food or money or sex. Um, so those are, these are, you could now say, three ways that love can go wrong that are distributed over the seven deadly sins, um, three, one, and three. So does that make sense? Or Okay. Um, well, I wanted us to look at these um, at these uh, later versions of Dante. We won't look at um, at the Shelley now, but there's the sheet that has Ovid on top. We've looked at the Ovid and the Milton, Milton already. Um, I wanted us to look at it again, but we won't. The other sheet that has T.S. Eliot on the right, 
Um, T.S. Eliot from Four Quartets, do you see that? Um, so this is, um, you may remember, you should remember, uh, Virgil's answer to Dante when Dante says, um, how come I'm casting a shadow? Why do I break the light is actually what he keeps asking. How come the light is broken around me but not around um, you? Do you remember Virgil's answer? Yeah, Dante has a body and Virgil doesn't. He left his body in Mantua. So it looks like he has a body, but he doesn't. He's a pure thing of the mind. Um, so in Four Quartets, you, some of you who've read Eliot will know how obsessed Eliot was with Dante. Um, if you've read The Wasteland, have people read it? Um, so there's a great line in The Wasteland, Unreal City, a, f a crowd flowed <coughs> over London Bridge, so many... I had not thought death had undone so many. And that line, I had not thought death had undone so many, that's a direct translation from Inferno. Um, so many dead. I had not thought death had undone so many. In Four Quartets, he describes a strange little moment in a kind of blank verse terzarima. Do people know what blank verse is? It's, it's in meter but not rhymed. Um, it's what Shakespeare mostly wrote in. It's what Milton wrote in, in Paradise Lost. Um, so here he's kind of alluding to Dante, but this is blank verse. We saw some blank verse in Heaney. Um, and this is, imagine this occurring in London during an air raid when everyone, early in the morning, when everyone is in air raid shelters. So in the uncertain hour before the morning, near the ending of interminable night, at the recurrent end of the unending, after the dark dove with a flickering tongue had passed below the horizon of his homing while the dead leaves still rattled on like tin. You can see that there is a kind of terzarima slant rhyme, morning, unending, homing. Um, night, the T and night goes to the T and tongue, which goes to the T and tin. After the dark dove with his flickering tongue had passed below the horizon of his homing while the dead leaves still rattled on like tin. Um, the dark dove is a bomb. Um, over the asphalt where no other sound was, between, these, between three districts, of course we know what those districts would be, whence the smoke arose, I met one walking, loitering and hurried as if blown towards me like the metal leaves before the urban dawn wind unresisting, and as I fixed upon the downturned face, that pointed scrutiny with which we challenged the first met stranger in the waning dusk, I caught the sudden look of some dead master whom I had known, forgotten, half recalled, both one and many. So essentially he meets Dante, both one and many, because it's not only Dante, but it's other great dead poets, but Dante is the central one, some dead master, both one and many. In the brown-baked features, the eyes of a familiar compound ghost, both intimate and unidentifiable. So I assumed a double part and cried and heard another's voice cried, What, are you here? Who says that? Do you remember? That's a direct translation from the Inferno. What, are you here? Someone says to Dante. Sorry? Yeah, which one? Bruno Latini. He says, what, are you here? When he meets Dante, his teacher, Bruno Latini. 
So, what are you here? He asks, as though he's now Bruno Latini in hell and he meets Dante. Although we were not. I was still the same, knowing myself, yet being something other, and he a face still forming. Yet the words suffice to compel the recognition they preceded. Okay, read through. Well, you have a lot of reading. We'll, we're going to start with this on Friday. Um, start Paradiso. Um, and if you have any papers for me, I would be glad for you to hand them in. The quiz is only is going to be a double quiz on Paradiso and Purgatorio from today. Okay.